We've been looking at some of the most extraordinary words in history, really. Life-changing, world-transforming words in the Sermon on the Mount. And we come to a new section today in Matthew 5. You'll find it at page 1426, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verse 13 to 16, a passage about the salt and the light. So let's just read together and then we'll get into it. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city Set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When you think about the, the need for the church in the world today. I think there are a few words that could be more important for us to hear. And some of the reasons why these are, are just so vitally urgent and important in these days are partly because here Jesus is beginning to hint at something of his, his global ambition. And I want to keep drawing your attention back to that. It's something which I, I pointed out so often, but You can see it here how he talks about the salt of the earth, which a lot of people might have just understood as the earth was one way of talking about the land of Israel and so on. But then he says the light of the world. And in so doing, he's he's starting to hint to his disciples, his followers, about his desire to, almost like a benevolent conqueror, to have a worldwide empire. We, 2,000 years on, had the privilege of seeing how this has unfolded and continues to unfold at an extraordinary pace today. But it's also important because Jesus isn't just saying, this is my desire and this is what I'm going to do. The passage points a finger right at you if you're a Christian and tells you that you are part of that mission. It's all about being part of Christ's mission, these verses here. And... More than anything else, you ought to go away from reading this, hearing this, hearing what I have to say today, with a deep conviction that whatever purpose you you thought your life has, this is the purpose Christ has for you. This is his will, his ambition, his, his desire for you. This is what he has made you and what he is making you. And I'd also just say it's important for this reason, that it tells you who you are. What do I mean? Well... These aren't verses which tell us what we could be if we aspire and try hard enough. They're not verses which sort of give us a command about what we must be. What he's doing here is he says in, in both sections, you are, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. He wants us to go away with a redefined sense of what we have become when we become Christians. And that ought to give you an extraordinary confidence that not only has Christ set you apart and put put you on his mission into the world, but he's given you everything you need to be fruitful in life. 
I know that as a Christian, you can feel sometimes like you're not making an impact, like your life isn't really having the effect you want it to have. I think all of us feel that regularly. But this ought to put something in us that Christ has, no, Christ has told you, this is what you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we need to rethink about our, our position in this city and in our workplaces and in our families in the light of this truth above everything else. This is what you are here to be and to do, to live this out. But obviously, there's something negative about these verses as well, that they... They, Jesus is, is, is pointing at and uncovering the reality that even though you can be a Christian and your life can be utterly transformed by Christ, you can, in fact, hinder God's purposes in your life and what he wants to use you to do. And particularly, there are two ways in which um, that is true and that what I want us to think about today and friends, if, if you have any desire to do something for Jesus and to live a life for him, then I want to urge you to pay attention to these and to even to search your heart as we're just uncovering these verses. These are penetrating words. And they couldn't be more serious. They couldn't be more important for what we're here to do as a church, but also as individuals. I'm very conscious that some of you are not just going to be here um, aren't going to be here for the long haul necessarily. Some of you, I hope, will grow old and retire together. Who knows? But some of us will just be here, as is often the case in London, for a short amount of time. And if there's anything that we could do, I would hope that your life would be set on a new trajectory and a new course in the mission of Jesus in the world. I think there's nothing more sad than a Christian who isn't wholly obsessed with, with this, with Christ and making him famous. I think there is nothing more sad than a Christian who isn't aware and and conscious of that. But fruitfulness in the Christian life is making Jesus known. Spreading his fame in all the earth. And I want us just to think about, well, what is it that he's trying to put his finger on in our hearts? What is it that Jesus is uncovering? What are the things that would most hinder us from being fruitful in these ways? I think there are two things. That's a very... Loud hand dryer, isn't it? <laughs> I think there are two things that this passage points to. The first is this that Christ doesn't want us to blend into the world, but rather he wants us to have lives that are standout different. And it really comes across in this first image that of the salt. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, when Jesus was using this image of salt, obviously um, it, it captures just the day-to-day uses that we still apply to salt today. Um, one is, obviously, its, its extraordinary taste. He draws attention to its taste. You just think about chorizo and... Chorizo, I'm not sure how you say it. <laughs> chorizo. <laughs> chorizo and... Uh, <laughs> just sounding a bit camp now. Um, and, uh, and pretzels and... Um, all the salty goodness, kettle chips. You know how like, when you open a bag and you literally can't stop if, someone, if you've got balsamic vinegar and ke- sea salt kettle chips in your hands? There's something so extraordinarily addictive and enhancing about the, the taste of salt, isn't there? Not on its own, of course, <laughs> but in combination. It brings something out of the food. 
And, uh, it, and Jesus totally had that in mind when he was talking about, when he says, you're the salt of the earth. He's not talking about some obscure mystical idea here. He's saying, no, 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 you're just an enhancing agent. That somehow the world is made better and more interesting and more beautiful by the presence of Christians in the world. That should be true in your family. That should be true in your workplace. That should be true even on your street and among your neighbors. That there is an enhancing, beautifying effect. And and coupled with that is the second thing that salt is and was always used for, which is that it has this purifying effect, that it stops meat in particular from putrefying and going moldy and going off. We still use it for exactly the same purposes today, don't we? That if, if meat is cured with salt, somehow it's a preventative thing. It stops the rot from setting in. And of course, in saying that, Jesus is assuming, and this is the assumption all through the Bible, that the world is a dark place with a lot of mess. I know that there's a veneer of, of, of being ordinary, gentle, nice people, even in the West, but you just scratch beneath the surface and you see something ugly, something rotten, something filthy and even nauseating, don't you? among relationships in dark corners, we're constantly hearing about the failures of the men that we most look up to, whether it's people on TV or people in leadership. We're constantly aware of these things. And Jesus is saying, Christians, my people, you are in the world to stop that. You bring an enhancing, wonderful flavor, but you also transform the environments you're in so that when you're at work, People behave differently. When you're home among the family, you're not the one stirring up strife, even if your mom or your brother is just really irritating, not in any way casting my eyes to the side there. You're the one bringing, bringing peace. And, you know, we talked about it so much in the Beatitudes, what it means to be peacemakers and what it means to be, to be full of the presence of Christ where we go. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what he's saying about us as Christians. But he says, he asks this question, what if salt loses its saltiness? Now, anyone who's a scientist here will know that that sounds, it is, it's impossible. Salt can't lose its saltiness. It's a very stable compound. But listen, the, the context is this. If you go down, down to Israel, to the lowest point on earth, you reach the Dead Sea. And in the Dead Sea... Um, there's just masses and masses of salt and minerals that have accumulated over millennia in that body of water, which is the lowest body of water on earth. And uh, that's where they would harvest salt. Now, I've been there. It's an extraordinary place to visit. I remember going there. With, the first time I went in the water, the Dead Sea, I was with a Canadian. And as is the custom, I understand, for North American gentlemen, they like to shave their bodies. So as he descended down into this salty water... You can imagine his agony began to rise as all his hair follicles that had been freshly shaved that morning were being filled with the minerals of the Dead Sea and his body felt like it was being scratched to pieces. He was literally in tears. But even that doesn't compare with our own dear, wonderful coyote who went down to the Dead Sea one time with his mum's camera and as he stepped into... Now, you've got to understand, when you go into the water of the Dead Sea, it's so salty that it almost feels like you're wearing a life jacket. You can't submerge your body very far. It's so buoyant, and you just float above the water. Literally, it'd be about there on your chest if you're upright. Coyote managed to slip on the rock, 
submerged his entire body, including his face and his mum's camera. <laughs> Heaven forbid, like none of us would want to see the wrath of Coyote's mum when he got home when, and saw, she saw what he'd done to it. Now, if you were in Israel, the natural place to get salt is from the Dead Sea. And you can, you can just harvest it all over the place. You just scrape it off the rocks. But the salt that you get from the Dead Sea is not pure salt. It's a, it's a collection of minerals. And uh, it tastes super salty. But because salt is so soluble, um, if it is exposed in the wrong way to water, the salt could be washed away. And what you'd be left with is just a white powder that might look like salt, but doesn't in any way taste like it and doesn't have the effect of salt. It's, it's for all intents and purposes, utterly useless. And so Jesus is saying here that while, while you're the salt of the earth, what happens if you lose your saltiness? Now, I think there are, there are basically two ways that a Christian can lose their saltiness. This is very important for us to think about. The first, I think, is through, through moral compromise. I know that one of the things that's most hurt the church, in, certainly in, in recent years, but you can think back, cast your mind through the centuries in church history, it's always the hypocrisy of Christians, isn't it? And we know it on the big level, but don't you realize that this is true also of us? That when people look at our lives, if what they see does not match up with what we speak about, then it damages our credibility, doesn't it? And it's so sad that, that people's only exposure to Christianity might be you and me. And if our lives aren't fully coherent with the things that we believe and teach. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. Of course you don't. We live humbly before the world. We acknowledge our weaknesses. We acknowledge our failings. But friends, you only know if this resonates with you, that there are ways that you live, things that you do, ways that you speak that are kind of, that are harming your saltiness, that are taking away your saltiness. Is it the case that when people meet you and know you and get to know you, that they are increasingly struck by how Christ-like you are or are they increasingly aware of how unchristlike you are? This is a really, really important question for us to think about. This is what Jesus is talking about, this moral uh, compromise. But it hasn't just got to do with the kind of public stuff, the stuff that everyone sees. So if you're in the office and you're, you're telling and partaking of crude humor and all this kind of stuff, then obviously that's public. People see it, it's obvious. I think it's possible also, though, for our saltiness to be lost, even through our hidden private sin. The things we meditate upon in our hearts, the things where our, where our hearts are drawn away from Christ, or the sins we indulge in in secret. It's obvious, isn't it, when you think about it, that the more you're given to sin, even in the secret place, it can't but have an effect on your outer life. It damages your integrity. To have integrity, just as I said before, it just means to be whole, it means to be one. But as soon as you have these compartments to your life, you're no longer one. It damages your passion. I think a lot of times we think that we, in a way, can get away with stuff. But 
the reality is that if Christ has called you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, as soon as sin creeps in, even hidden sin, it begins to damage and destroy and diminish your love for God. And you might think this isn't harming anybody, but in reality your passion is growing weaker. It's even fading away. This is saltiness being washed away, being, being taken away. We could even maybe go a bit further and say, I think it, it affects your anointing. You know, the Bible talks about us having the Spirit, that we are clothed with the Spirit, that we are full of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can withdraw His favor from us. And it has to do with moral compromise, the things that offend Him. I think also, though, that you can lose your saltiness, not just through this moral element in your life, but even through your, the way you think and the things you believe and your doctrine, a kind of doctrinal compromise. Now, if you know anything about the history of the church in, in this nation, it's gone through periods of extraordinary revival where masses of people have come to, to uh, flood churches and come to know Jesus And then as decades wear on, it's gone through periods of drought and even death. And that's been the cycle through church history. But we're at a time when we're still seeing churches being emptied. And you ask yourself, why? What is the root cause for for churches being emptied across this nation? And the answer isn't actually that hard to figure out. It's just this that you can go to any number of churches across this nation and they don't believe the things the Bible says. Now, it's almost laughable, isn't it? To hold your hand up and say, hey, we're Christians and this is a church, but we don't actually believe what Jesus preached. That, and for no other reason, is why churches are dead and dying across the land. But friends, this isn't only something that you need to be aware of at that level. I mean, not many of us are going to have much impact at that level, are we? This is something that can also be true for you personally. I think you can lose your saltiness if you don't know what you believe and you don't know why you believe it. If you're put on the spot and people ask you questions about your faith, are you able to accurately and succinctly and persuasively tell people why you believe what you believe. Now, I don't want you to go away feeling heavy and condemned. Oh, no, I don't know anything and all that kind of stuff. I think you need to go away with a renewed vigor that part of what it means to be salty is to have a mind that's dedicated to God. And you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a bachelor's in theology or a master's in theology. Sometimes it's just the most basic stuff that that believers must grasp and be able to articulate. I say that because in in Colossians 4, Paul says, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think Paul was no doubt calling to mind these words about Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. And he thinks about the countless conversations he's had as a scholar and how for Christians to be effective in the world, they need to have salty conversation. They need to know what they believe and they need to know why they believe it. Friend, have you made it your life goal and ambition to know Christ better 
by filling your heart and filling your mind with the knowledge of him and his word and learning, studying how to be more effective in persuading others. That's what it means, I think, to be salty. Not that it all relies on you. Not that you're the power that can save people. But that God wants the instrument to be sharper so that he can use you, so that you can be effective for him. This is something that you come across throughout the New Testament. I think about a passage like this in Hebrews 5 where he says, though by this time, he's really telling them off. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers. He's just talking to the ordinary Christians. He's saying, actually, all of you have been Christians long enough in this church that by now every one of you ought to be able to teach other people about your faith. He says, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature. And friends, I just read you this just to exhort you to make it your passion to be more salty by learning and knowing and being able to express and articulate the things that we believe. It says in 1 Peter 3, 15, it says, In your hearts that we should honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with, with respect. The reality is that the, the apostles were confident that the faith that we believe can be defended. That it is, it is, and it's not even that hard. Providing you make it your desire to know how. Friends, are you salty? Or have you sort of lost that? Do you just blend in? Whether through lifestyle compromise or whether because you don't really know anything. Let me just ask you, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you can become one today. Christ hasn't made it so hard that it's unattainable. He just wants you to come to him in humility and say, Lord, I can't save myself. Will you save me? I'm, I've got all this mess in my life, my sin. I confess it to you. Wash it away. And immediately Christ says, he'll come and and eat with you. He'll come and dwell in you. He'll come and fill you. Are you a Christian? Are you useful? That's the first thing that Christ draws our attention to. The second is this, that while there's one danger that you can be so immersed in the world that you kind of lose your saltiness and, and, and you just blend into the background, the other danger that Christ now draws our attention to is this, that Christians can withdraw from the world and and be useless because they are nowhere, they're not in proximity. Just as salt has to be rubbed into the meat to be of any use. So also Christians need to be in proximity with others in order to have the effect that we're called to have. But this particularly comes out in the picture of light when Jesus begins to talk about us being the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Let me just take a step back. Before we get on to, okay, what does this mean for us? We need to take a step back and think about light. In the Old Testament, which of course was the Bible Jesus read, knew, had grown up reading, light spoke of three things in summary. The first was that it has to do with um, purity instead of filth. That... The image of light in the Old Testament speaks of bringing purity to bear in the heart instead of filth. And I think we live in a world where people are very conscious, 
even when they dare not admit it, they're very conscious that their hearts have, have darkness inside. Things we feel guilty for. Things we can't, we're powerless to change. And in such a world, every heart has at least a part of it that craves light. That craves the opportunity for forgiveness, for transformation, for hope. It speaks of that. It also speaks of this. It speaks of truth and knowledge instead of ignorance. And we, still, we still use it in that way today. We talk about the enlightenment. There's a period in history when apparently humans just got cleverer. Now, of course, that's not really true at all. It's just that they, ha- they developed a bunch, of, um, a bunch more technology. But people who think seriously about life realize at some point that there are questions that they cannot answer. That for all our advances as humans and all our vastly accumulating knowledge, you just think about Wikipedia alone. as that great resource of human knowledge. It is almost, it would seem, inexhaustible. And there won't be a person on the planet who's read it all. Because even if they try to, it changes the next day when people start editing and, and twisting all the posts about things. But it is just, it, you can't plumb the depths of it. But you know, don't be deceived. Even if humans know more about the mechanisms and the machinery of the world we live in, and about history and, and characters and people and all these kinds of things, even if we're accumulating more and more knowledge, it is only of a certain kind and a certain quality. It seems to me that for all our boasting about how much we know, humanity is still just as ignorant. And we talk about people being primitive. We think about tribes in the jungles of Brazil that have never actually met any other people and don't know anything beyond their own technical skill. And we think, wow, how enlightened and extraordinary we are. But look, look at it from another angle. Isn't it the case that We've just found more cleverer ways to do evil. We've found ways to pillage and ruin the planet. We've found ways to kill our own children in a way that won't endanger the mothers. We've found ways to bomb entire cities. We've found ways of filling oceans with poison. We've found all kinds of ways to do more evil more quickly because we're so enlightened and clever. And into this context, the Bible is not against science. It's not against all that kind of accumulation, development of knowledge. But there's, it has to know its place. And it has to know that real insight, real revelation, real knowledge, real truth has to come from God or we don't know anything at all. Who can answer the question, where do we go after death, if God doesn't tell us? So any thinking person is going to come to a realization at some point that there are questions they do not know the answer to and that they must find out. That's what light speaks about. Purity instead of filth, truth instead of ignorance, and also a third thing, it speaks about God's presence instead of his abandonment. In the Bible, light speaks about the presence and the favor of God on us and on us as a community. And it seems to me that while people do their very best to wear their best face, that there are so many countless people in this city who sense a deep vacuum in the heart that they don't know what they're here for and they don't know 
who they're here for, and they feel an emptiness. That Try as they will to climb to the top of the ladder, they never attain what they want. Why? Because they don't have light. They're still in the dark. And it's with all this background of what it means for light to shine that the Bible then says Jesus is the light. I read a verse right at the start where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he's only drawing on what the Bible's already said about him before he was born in the book of Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 42, it says, um, I'm the Lord, I've called you, speaking about Jesus, in righteousness, I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. What for? It says to open eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And Jesus is fully aware and cognizant of this. That when he starts speaking about the light of the world, he knows it's himself. That he is that light. He's the one who... Who, who brings the purity instead of the filth into human hearts. Friends, people all around us are aware of their need to be clean. They just maybe haven't acknowledged it. Jesus is the answer. He's the one who brings truth instead of ignorance. There is widespread mass ignorance about God. But thankfully, because Jesus stepped into history, we can know what God is like with complete certainty because we look at God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's the light of the world because people look at him and they say, now we know who made us and what he's like. And he's the light of the world because he brings the favor of God's presence into lives when people felt abandoned and far from him. He's the light of the world because you can know him as your friend. Because you can know his forgiving presence in your life. But here's the extraordinary thing. In Matthew 5, when Jesus addresses you, he says, you are the light of the world. He's saying, all that's true of me and what I have come to do is now carried like a mantle by you as a Christian. This is what you're here to do. You're here to help people who are lost in their sin, who are lost in their ignorance, who are lost in their sense of loneliness and abandonment with that vacuum in the heart. They don't know God. This is your job. This is what you are called to do. And so the implication, friends, is that realize it or not, you have the answers that the world needs. You are the light of the world. And when there's widespread, desperate need for that light all around us, how is it that we find it sometimes so hard to, as Christ put it, to let that light shine? I think there's a few reasons. I think one is that, as I mentioned last week, that we withdraw partly because of fear. And you see this impulse in Christians all the time, but it's also true of whole groups of Christians in church history. You think about the monastic um, sort of impulse to, to withdraw into the desert, to withdraw into your cloisters. Why? Because you're afraid, really, of what the world will do to you. 
You don't realize that Christ has promised that he's in you and that he who is in you is stronger than the world and that Christ has made you to be light and to be salt and to be in the world. And so you withdraw. And we withdraw in fear. We withdraw in fear of being rejected, being attacked, all these kinds of things. Fear. Another reason we withdraw is because of comfort. I think that, I think that while Christ is changing us and making us more like himself, we all still just love to be comfortable, don't we? And we want the easy life. And sometimes... Being light in the world is not an easy life. It requires that you step into dark situations. It requires that you know people who have darkness in their lives. And it's sometimes just easier not to bother. And I think we withdraw also because we can just be cold-hearted. That when when we look around us, even though the Bible says that people are in darkness... And all the darkness we've been talking about, the darkness of feeling dirty, the darkness of feeling um, ignorant and of feeling far from God. And some people are actually aware that they're in darkness. We as Christians do not always have the compassion to compel us to, to enable people to know what we know. To introduce people through ourselves to the light of the world, Jesus himself. Friends, what does Jesus want of us? It really all comes to a focus in this last verse. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Allow me just to bring this all to a summary with three things that I want to say as we close. First of all, I think these verses are a call toward holiness. With the awareness that your life is going to be more effective the more you are set apart for God in holiness. Not just in your public conduct, but also in the secret places of your heart. Are you holy? What is it that you need to repent of, even right now, even today, that God would make you saltier, brighter? I think secondly, these verses call us to think about this question. Do we know the truth that makes us powerful? And, and a follow-on from that is, who do you need to tell? Shining your light, as Christ talks about here, is an active thing. It's not something passive. It's not that we just sit around waiting for opportunities, and then we whip out a little lamp just at the right moment. It's not like that. It's that you are kind of a broadcasting you know like those towers in, in Sydenham Hill and that where the, the, the phone masts, they're there, they're constantly interacting, constantly broadcasting. Christians, that is what you are so supposed to be like. You're not an agent in secret and in disguise, working undercover. You are meant to be, well, let me put it this way, you're meant to be a fanatic. I know that's kind of a dirty word these days associated with all kinds of unpleasant things that are happening in the world. But there's a sense in which we are called to be fanatical about Jesus so that we cannot help but talk about him. Let your light shine before others, he says. A proactive, conscious decision never to stop talking about Jesus. I think sometimes we make, we make it easy on ourselves to try and find ways of... Um, Saying, oh, you know, I'm just waiting for opportunities, or I'm just 
gently, gently getting to know people. Um, and, and listen, the reality of the Bible is that God's people just can't be shut up, can they? And sure, not everyone's going to like what we have to say, but if we really believe what we have to say, they still need to know it, right? So just shove it down their throats. That's one way you can think of it. So it's holiness. <laughs> holiness, truth, and finally, finally, we can bring it to a focus, understanding that we're called to love. I think this last verse really, really brings this to focus when he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Love, when it's put into action, to some degree makes us look good. But not that that's our hope or our intention. It's rather that God looks good through us. I know we're going to find when we go a little bit further on in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus talks about doing good things in secret. So like when you give with one hand or with one click of the mouse on the gracelondon.org.uk website, (laughs) you don't let your other hand see what it's doing. So one hand's in your pocket as you're giving. So we know that there's a sense in which Christ calls his people to a sincerity of good works by not doing them for show. That you're not just doing them for the praise of man. But really the focus is very different here because he's not talking about people doing stuff for the praise of man. He's talking about the call for Christians to do stuff for God's glory. And I think really that when Christians are Christians, when they're just living out unselfconsciously what it means to be a Christian in the world, sooner or later, people are going to look at you and take note of the way you live and they're going to wonder why. You can't hide the fact that you're a loving person. You can't obscure that. It's who you are. And the reason is not because you are great. Because, friend, you are not. It's because God has saved you and he's put his spirit in you and his passion for others inside you. Wholeness, truth, and love. What do you need to do for others that will make your light shine. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are so conscious of our extraordinary weakness. Lord, most of us just feel lame. Lord, and we're aware of our personal failings. We're aware of our desire to live for you and how, Lord, We don't always know what to say and we don't know what to do. And to compound it all, Lord, we're aware of the sin in our hearts, Lord, that diminishes our love for you. And God, as we hear these words afresh today, that Jesus says, you're salt, you are light. I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and enable us to change. That, Lord, we wouldn't lose our saltiness. And that we wouldn't attempt to hide the light that you've put in us. But that we would see that just as Christ has this global ambition to be known in all the world, we are here to make that a reality. And I pray you would make us increasingly effective as your people to bring the knowledge of God into this city. Forgive us our sins, Lord. Fill us with your spirit to make us increasingly effective for you. We ask it in the name of your son, 
fully conscious, Lord, that our weakness is more than made up for by his strength and by your spirit living in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.